0: Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Dream Bigger Podcast. I'm your host, Sif. I'm the founder of Arraya and Glitter, and on this podcast, I chat with thought leaders and experts who inspire, motivate, and help you live your best life. So let's talk about fear. When you really sit down and dissect fear, it's truly a fascinating mechanism. I read earlier this year in a book that you can recalibrate your mind into taking fear and turning it into something positive. Apparently, some performers do this before going out on stage. So today, I'm chatting with Dr. Mark McLaughlin, a leading neurosurgeon and expert on fear. We discuss fear, what happens when we feel it, and how we can rationally deal with it. It was a really interesting conversation, and I'm sure you guys will learn a lot. So let's welcome Dr. Mark to the show. Okay, so the first question I have for you is Do you remember your first real run in with fear? Well,
1: I think it was as a little kid. You know, uh, I remember a, a, a terrible dream I had. I didn't know what. REM sleep was like. And I had this dream that these two big football players were chasing me around my house and I couldn't run because I was, you know, I was in REM sleep. So I was in essentially skeletal muscle paralysis. And I remember waking up as a kid and just thinking, oh my God, that was, what was that? You know, and I, not until many years later, do you, you know, learn that, you know, when you're in REM sleep, you, you, you can't move other than your eyes. So that was really, I think, my first experience. And then as I became a little bit older, I started, started the sport of wrestling. And um, it was something my brothers did and I got into. Uh, and it, I think that's really the first time I, I really started experiencing uh, levels of fear that were significant. And, you know, for, for, for anyone who hasn't wrestled, just you know, getting ready on the side of a mat, getting ready to step into a ring with somebody who maybe looks older than you, maybe looks bigger than you, um, and you're going to go out and compete against them, it's, it's a huge, huge um, dose of fear. And, and that's what I think the sport of wrestling is. For, for me as a coach, it's like a fear laboratory. And so when I coach youth wrestling now, I love to sort of see what's on the, on my wrestlers' minds, the kids' minds, because, you know, you can see some of the software that's in their brain and how it's functioning. And a lot of times, you know, they're focused on the size of the person or the age of the person, and, and you know, you, and you try and refocus them into, no, 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 we're going to talk about you, how much you've prepared for this and how much you're ready for it. Don't worry about what he looks like. That doesn't tell you what, the, what, what his skills are. And so the, the coaching youth wrestling has really has been fun for me because I, I can see fear um, in, in kids and I can help help them work through it. And not only in, in young boys, but also in girls and wrestling, girls wrestling has become a huge sport. So it's really neat to see how how these kids deal with it and how you can tweak it here and there so that they can have you know better coping skills to perform at their best.
0: For sure. So I want to I want to go back a little bit in the sense that I want to understand exactly when you were interested in unpacking this notion of fear, right? Because I think for most of us, it's not really an emotion that we think about too deeply. So my question for you is like, as a neurosurgeon, how how do you get into really wanting to understand fear?
1: It, well it, what it's it started with as I began to practice neurosurgery um, and even just in a, in a resident as I was learning I I realized this tremendous amount of anxiety that I had and my fellow residents had um, and it was one of these we were worriers we had to worry about things and um, and, and we and it, not only was it everybody doing it, but it seemed to me that the ones who did it the most actually headed a lot of problems off of the past. They were more meticulous they were they, they thought of everything that could possibly go wrong before a surgery and um, and they, they were prepared for it. And so that was really my first taste of it And you know some people would say, well anxiety I mean that's not fear, but really it is. And having any sense of um, unrest, uneasiness, any kind of uh, anxiousness or unsettled feeling, that's a low-level dose of fear. That's your brain sending a signal to you, hey, there's something going on here that's not right. It's not consistent with what uh, what I expected. And, and so, yeah, if it becomes more and more uh, powerful and, let's say, a more significant deviation from what you expected yes then you're going to experience higher levels of what we call the fear gradient when you actually start feeling terror or or mortification or those kinds of experiences but and even low level anxiety uh, in my opinion is is a manifestation of fear so, as a neurosurgery resident, I had this incredible amount of anxiety about oh my gosh, I have people's lives in my hand. And then, as a doctor practicing, I felt it as well. And so, as I began to um, tell stories about my experiences to to um, people at West Point, I was invited to speak up at West Point with the cadets, and also to my young wrestlers. I I started sort of analyzing uh, what what fear did to me, um, how I needed a certain level of it to really perform well. But when I had too much of it, it would impede my performance. And if I didn't have enough of it, I wasn't good either. So that's where I started really thinking about fear. And you know, a neurosurgeon, on, so I've been doing neurosurgery for 20 years, and I've calculated that I've probably made 30,000 critical decisions that uh, many of which are life and death, and I thought, wow, what a unique experience that I have as a neurosurgeon. What can I learn from those decisions that could help others? Because really, when you, you become a, a neurosurgeon, you're a decision-making machine. You're constantly assessing a situation: is it life and death? How important is it? What are the what are the variables, and how does this? How does this most likely? How is it most likely going to play out? And so I thought, wow, I, I I've used that decision making algorithm uh, not only in neurosurgery. I started using it in life. I started using it in leadership and business and parenting and everything that I did. And I realized that hey, I think I have something that I've learned here that is transferable to other areas of life. And it's really right. how do we think and how do we act and behave and make decisions. While under the power of some level of fear, right?
0: That's fascinating. So, I, I mean, I so while I was doing my research for this this interview, I came across a term that you use, and it's fear freakout. So, I think like that's really the the beginning of this, like you know, unpacking this whole fear situation. So, could you explain what exactly the fear freakout even is?
1: That's essentially when you experience fear to a level that it becomes a, a, a terrible feedback loop that progressively turns you into a state of immobility, of inability to function. And and that can happen to anybody. I mean, it's basically when something goes wrong or something comes that's unexpected and it just progressively spirals into worse and worse and worse um, fear that, that renders you ineffective. That's, that's this the fear freak out.
0: This is something we also like build up in our mind, right? Like say, for example, you know, you, you know, you have to have a really difficult conversation, for example, like this is something we tend to build up in our mind so that it almost brings us to a fear freak out point, right?
1: Exactly. And our brain has all of these poor coping mechanisms to, to, um, to, to avoid it. You know, to postpone it, to procrastinate about it, to um, to, to 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 not do what needs to happen—that would be one example of the fear freak out. You know, another would be you know in, in a life-threatening situation where, let's say you're um, let's say you're hiking on a mountain and a storms coming in, and you realize you you don't, you didn't pack a, a raincoat, and it's starting to get cold, and you're tired and you know, all of these factors start start landing on your brain like, oh my gosh, I wasn't prepared. There's a storm coming in now. What am I going to do? And you can easily wrap that up to a, a level of panic instead okay. of saying, all right, I'm a little bit cold. Let's get some food in me. Let's get let's find an area that I can protect myself. Do I need to get off this um, area of exposure, or can I? Do I have to find some shelter in within some rocks nearby, and you know what can I do now to help myself?
0: Right. So I guess like that is the the rational way of almost un, undoing the fear, if if you can, you know. Like I guess like closest thing to undoing it. So what what is the thought process, or like what what is the way that someone can go about? Rationally undoing certain fears we have, or like, you know, kind of not go into this fear freak out spiral.
1: Sure. It all goes back to um, a psychologist by the name of Carl Jung, who I'm a great admirer of. And um, Jung talked about how how fear evolves. Uh, And what he described is how we're all sort of on this path uh, in life. And the path is from. This one state where we are now uh, to another state where we think we should be, whether that's for me being a medical student wanting to become a neurosurgeon, that's the path. And uh, just to use use that for an example. And along that path, we we are acting. We are continually living our lives and we are performing actions along the way. And when um, when we're performing those actions, what happens is these unexpected events come into our life. And Jung talked a lot about this, and he called these things called transformational moments. So he said that these events will come into our life um, as we're on our path from where we are to what what we think should be. And if those events are consistent with our path to where we think we should be, we have hope, and we're reinforced, and we continue on our path. But if there's an event that comes that's not consistent with where we think we should be, let's say I'm in medical school and I fail a test, um, and I and that that is a, an event that is not consistent with my path to becoming a neurosurgeon, um, then we experience fear, some level of it, anxiety. Maybe um, maybe something more than anxiety, but we experience um, a concern and a level of fear. so he he described you know young was a big believer in in alchemy, not the physical alchemy that we think of you know converting lead into gold. He believed that the alchemists had it they had something in metaphysics that we that we can we can glean from their their, their beliefs, mm-hmm. and that was that transformational moments can they can make us or they can break us, and it's how we deal with those moments uh, that that will really define where we go and at what we become. So right. that's where the fear comes from. So what I propose in in analyzing it, what I found works for me when I'm dealt with these situations, both in medicine and outside, is. I gotta pick it apart. I gotta pick this transformational moment apart, and I can do that by asking myself a series of questions. First question is: What are the objective and subjective components of this event? Um, so what I mean by that is: What is when I say objectively? What are the material facts of this event that everyone would agree on? You know, um, if it's um, if it's uh, uh, I'm on the mountain. It would be okay. Uh, the temperature is, is 55 degrees and there's a wind chill factor. Um, I have two miles to get to a safe shelter, which is going to take me 35 minutes hike. I have X, Y, and Z uh, in my pack to help me stay warm to eat and to drink something. So those are the, those are the, those are the undeniable objective facts. And then mm-hmm. there's the subjective what is the so objective is the material thing. Subjective is the meaning of it, the meaning of it. Um, yeah. and, and that would be something more like, OK, you know, um, this is a this is a mountain I've hiked a bunch of times. I love this mountain. I love hiking. And, you know, I'm here exactly where I want to be. And I like the challenge of of being in the outdoors. So that would be something. What's the meaning of it? So that'd be the first thing you want to do when you're analyzing an event. What's the subjective and the objective component of something? Then it would be, am I familiar with this or is this something totally unknown to me? Is this some kind of black swan or some unknown event? And then lastly, is this a tool for me to uh, be able to move towards where I want to be or is this an obstacle? And if you can map those questions out, you can can figure out where you are on your path. And so I I, I do it with a diagram. I basically take an X and a Y axis, similar to a typical Cartesian coordinate system. And you can think of of the X-axis as material goods um, uh, um, and and the y-axis as meaning. Or even you could even call the x-axis happiness and the y-axis meaning. And and as you take an event and you say, okay, what are the objective and subjective components of it? If you made the x-axis objective and the y-axis subjective, you could map out where you were in the four quadrants of that Cartesian coordinate system. And based upon Mm -hmm. that, you'll know where you're at on your path.
0: Got it, and so I guess that that helps you rationally figure out. Okay, like I, I guess like kind of stop in your tracks if you're reeling out of control. Am I correct?
1: Exactly. It can it, if you start thinking about a problem that is maybe becoming a negative feedback loop into the fear freakout, and you start unpacking it. That's the first way to break the loop. That's the first mm-hmm. way. And then knowing where you're at. So if you take the, the X and the Y axis, okay, and you, got, you have your upper right-hand quadrant, okay, mm-hmm. that's what I call the double positive. That's the flow zone. That's where everything is working exactly in concert with what you're expecting. So you are, you've objectively gotten something positive. You're subjectively, the meaning to that is high for you, and you're in flow. Don't do a lot of thinking in that quadrant. Let your body and your mood and your gut determine where you go. But let's—that's
0: basically like if if you were on the mountain and it's like the perfect sunny day and everything is going well.
1: You could still be in flow even in a dangerous, life-threatening situation. You could, if you're, if if it's, if if you have trained for it and you know that exact, that's exactly what you're fit for. Let's say you're on the rescue team and you you're out there you know right. that you're out there and you're going to help somebody who needs the help. That could be a, a, a total flow event for you. But Got let, it. Okay. let's say it's um, objectively something positive, but subjectively something negative. For instance, like, let's say you get a job promotion with, with a raise and a new office, but then you realize that the person that you have to report to now and the job you've been assigned is not... Is not consistent with who you believe you are uh, or it's mm-hmm. somebody who you don't respect then you're in the lower right-hand quadrant you you know it's subjectively negative objectively positive that's what I call the calm before the storm zone that's where okay. you've got to do some work you've got to think about okay I am in a state of cognitive dissonance here I wasn't cognitive consonance when I was in flow but now I'm in cognitive mm-hmm. dissonance. I have in I have inconsistent thoughts, feelings, actions, and beliefs. So you need to think about that and work out of that. Now let's say you get hit with something that's objectively negative and subjectively negative. Let's say mm-hmm. you know, that's like that's like a diagnosis of cancer. You know, that's like yeah. a, a loved one passes away. That's that's the low, that's double negative. And that's what i call the all is lost quadrant and when you're in the Mm -hmm. all is lost quadrant things can be very dark and and they can be dreary um and and you and again that's an area that you need to do some work go ahead
0: so then like if if you are in this quadrant like how do you advise that someone sort of comes out of it like still like basically not having Completely driven themselves crazy because I think that the key here is that like if you are in the d- double negative situation, which is actually like a terrible place to be, like the whole like that is I guess the you can just kind of go crazy with fear when you're in that place. So how do you advise someone sort of comes out of that?
1: Good question. Before I answer that, let me just can I cover the last quadrant, which is the upper left hand quadrant. That's the quadrant. Yeah. that's the quadrant where you're objectively negative. But subjectively mm-hmm. positive. That's one of those things where let's say you 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 um you you lose your job. You lose your job, um, but it allows you to get closer to defining who you are. You go for a you know a 10-day a hike on the Appalachian Trail, and it gives you the opportunity to find what your next step is going to be. And you, at and you, the end of it, you say, gosh, that was terrible. That was a bad experience, but I'm glad I, I did it. I'm glad it happened. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I'm, I, you know, I, I'm glad that it, the event happened. So that's what I call the birthing a new skill set quadrant. And having the knowledge that we all are going to live in one of these quadrants during our path from where we are, To where we what we should be or what we expect to be is really comforting because you have to understand that you're going to go through all four of those quadrants in your life as you learn it's the heroic journey that's what we do we 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 have a skill, we're really good at it, and then something maybe happens to us, it puts us into a little bit of a quandary, and then maybe it gets worse and we actually fall into that all is lost quadrant. And then we've got mm-hmm. to figure out a way to, to climb our way up to find out what our newest meaning is and bring it into our skill set. And then we go in from the birthing a new skill set over to the flow. And it's this constant movement from these quadrants, never always in a perfectly clockwise fashion. Sometimes we're in flow mm-hmm. and we go to all is lost. Sometimes we're mm-hmm. in birthing a new skill set and we go back to the calm before the storm. These are the sort of challenges that we have in life. So now sort of addressing your uh, question, how do you climb out of that all is lost? Well, one thing that's for certain is I think you got to really dig deep and say, what are my meta goals in life? What is is my truest being and truest version of myself that I'm most proud of? And you've got to commit a micro action towards that goal. You've got to do something that might move you ever so closely back to that meta meaning. And by doing that over and over and over again, I think that you can climb your way out of the all is lost moment. Um, One all is lost moment I'll share with you is uh, my brother-in-law who passed away a couple years ago um, when when he got sick and I was involved in trying to help him Mm -hmm. during his death. um, It was, it was a, it was a terribly sad experience but it was one that i i said okay well i'm going to help this person i'm going to help this man land softly i'm going to help him get his business stabilized i'm going to help my sister with his affairs i'm going to help i'm going to grow closer to him in this small amount of time that we have together and i'm going to help his children get through this as well and so it's one of those things where all right i'm going to be the this is a terrible situation but i'm going to be the best darn brother-in-law i can possibly be and the best brother to my sister that i possibly can be and despite a terrible experience you know of 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 you know seeing him deal with this terrible you know illness um i'm also very proud of 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 how the whole thing unfolded because I was able to help, help it unfold in a more um, constructive fashion.
0: Right. Um, Well, I'm really sorry to hear about your brother-in-law, but it's, it's, I I don't know, I guess like that story is one of like a little bit of hope where like, you know, you can guide your thoughts to sort of finding, um, I don't know, I guess like like something in, in that situation to kind of help you climb out of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I like to follow the the belief that you can function effectively, even in the face of failure. That's one of my mantras that that's you can, you everybody, all of your listeners are going to experience this. This is when you've done everything right and something mm-hmm. bad still happens. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. we've all experienced that. And, um, and y- y- if you that's why I think the, the map of the axes can help you get through these experiences and help diffuse that fear freak out. And um, I tell a story about about um, uh, an experience I had as a young physician. And um, it, if it's okay with you, I'll share it because it'll help us illustrate oh, the, the quadrants. So when I first started, I finished my training at the University of Pittsburgh, and I I had an extensive experience in pediatric neurosurgery and general neurosurgery, and then I went on to Emory, and I did a a complex spine fellowship, and I came out to practice, and in my first month of practice, I met Jesus Rodriguez. Jesus had miscalculated. He dove into a pool at his house, and Mm -hmm. his body immediately became numb. And he was unable to move his arms and legs. And I met oh, him, I met him on a warm summer night, my first year of practice, my first month of practice. And Jesus was quadriplegic. He had a fracture dislocation of his cervical spine. And um I took him to the operating room emergently okay. and I reduced that fracture and I stabilized his spine. Mm-hmm. And um his odds of recovering from that were probably like one in a thousand. Mm-hmm. But amazingly, a couple of days later he started wiggling his fingers and his toes. And and two weeks later, he walked out of the hospital. And I thought, Wow, oh my God, this is why I went into neurosurgery. I love this. This is great. Yeah. And, you know, in in truth, um, Jesus was a very, very lucky man, and I was a very lucky young surgeon to take care of him. Mm -hmm. A few weeks later, a young boy came into our emergency room. He had fallen off of a school bus, and he had cut his face. His parents were at his bedside, and what they said to the ER doctor who called me down was, he's not acting right. Um, mm-hmm. Mom and dad owned a pizza parlor down the street, and Anthony was this eight-year-old boy who was like a bus boy and helping his dad, and dad's like, you know, he's, he's my number one helper at the pizza parlor, but he's been dropping plates, and he's been clumsy, and he's been sleeping a lot. Well, a quick MRI scan showed that he had um, a tumor in the back of his head pressing on his brainstem.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So I had just come off of, you know, taking care of Jesus. And I had this great training, this great training pedigree. And I was like, hey, I can fix him. He's a, you know, he's got a tumor. I can take it out and I can fix him. I, I, I love this little kid. He had a great sense of humor. And he was this cute kid. And he would had a smile on his face. And I just was attached to him. I got, I got attached to him. And um, I took him to the operating room. A day or so after I met him, and uh, I positioned him and uh, put his head facing down because I had to go to the, through the back of his head, and I I made the incision and I came down on the on Anthony's skull and I I opened his skull and I opened the coverings of the brain and I came down on this very angry bloody tumor, mm-hmm. which I um, I started. Uh, shrinking with my instruments. I brought in the microscope. I started cutting the blood supply to the tumor off and I got started getting around it. And then I started gutting it from the inside, almost like scooping it out like a melon ball or scooping out a melon with little micro instruments. And I started collapsing it and I started shrinking it and I started getting around it. And sure enough, five hours later, I shaved it right off of his brainstem and the operation went perfectly. Mm -hmm. We took Anthony to the uh, uh, recovery room in the ICU, and he woke up perfectly intact. And I thought, man, this is great. I love being a neurosurgeon. I was in flow. Jesus, Anthony, I was in total flow. Mm -hmm. But about 24 hours later, Anthony started uh, developing complications. He stopped talking. He started shrieking every time we touched his body and oh he God. developed a, a very rare complication called cerebellar mutism, which is where yeah. patients, they they don't talk and they can't move. They become very apathetic and they just lay in bed. And he had this terrible, terrible case of this um, cerebellar mutism. I took him back for a scan the scan looked clear. There was no tumor. The brain tissue looked good, but he looked terrible and he was in a lot of pain. A day or so later, he, his pathology came back, aggressive tumor, something called an anaplastic tumor, bad prognosis. Then he developed a fluid buildup and I had to put a shunting catheter in to decrease the, uh, the pressure inside of his head and then he had developed a clog of that tubing and day after day after day he had complications complication, just like after, one complication day after, after complication and it was it was i mean he, he just i just saw this beautiful boy who i thought i could fix start slipping through my fingers and mm-hmm. i just saw the the pain that, and, that he was in and the suffering that he and his parents had and i i was like wow this is not what I expected when I went into neurosurgery. This is not a feeling that I that I like. I I feel responsible for this. I feel like I've hurt this boy, mm-hmm. even though I was doing everything that I could. Mm-hmm. So I was in the calm before the storm. I was uncomfortable, and I didn't know how to deal with something like that. Right. And um, he finally stabilized, but he was he was not the same. Anthony that I saw when he came in the hospital and I was concerned that he never would be again. And, um, he ultimately went to rehab and got his treatments and things. And, but I, he left the hospital, but he never left me. And Mm -hmm. I, um, I continually thought about him and was concerned about him to the point where I said, I'm I'm not going to do pediatric nurses anymore. I just can't deal with feeling like this. I would go for these long walks at night and ask myself, you know, what, oh my gosh, like, what could I have done differently? What, what, you know, what was it that I could have done differently to just, you know, that I could, I have picked up his infection quicker. Could I have, you know, uh, operated in a way that, you know, he didn't develop that fluid buildup could something I have done differently. And I, no matter how well the surgery I did on him, I, I constantly felt like I could have done something better. Mm -hmm. So I actually shifted from the calm before the storm to the all is lost. And I, I felt really lonely, even being around great partners and a loving wife and family. I just felt really alone. And I felt like I had named this boy. So, I, as I said, I, I stopped doing pediatric neurosurgery and I, um, I, I ultimately moved. I moved out of the town and I moved down to New Jersey and I tried to start a new practice. And um, I, I began practicing and I developed this practice. And fast forward 15 years, I started writing this book about fear and mm-hmm. grief and how I dealt with it. And I realized that I had to find out what happened to Anthony, even though I knew in my heart that he had probably passed away. Mm -hmm. So I jumped on Facebook and I looked up the family's pizza parlor, which is still there. And sure enough, there's a picture of his mom and dad on the website. And I scrolled down a little farther and I saw this 24 year old man in a wheelchair with his parents. I'm like, wow. Oh my God. Anthony's still alive. Mm -hmm. I called his parents and I, I said, I, I want to come up and see you. I want to come up and see Anthony. Can I come up and see you? I'm writing this book and my experience with you and with Anthony is profound, profoundly affected me. And I want to talk to you about it. So I, I drove up that weekend and I saw Anthony and his parents and, you know, Anthony, he clearly has some deficits, but he's still, he's still there with his family and his mom and dad were there and they were happy to see me. And I, I told him. I said, "Listen, I wanted to tell you that, you know, I've, I've always thought of you and 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 of Anthony, and I've always kind of carried this feeling that I could have done more for him, and I wish I had brought him brought him back to you the way he he came to me, and you know, uh, they came they 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 came to me and they gave me this big hug and they said, Doctor McLaughlin, like, what are you crazy? You're our hero. You saved our boy. He's still with us. He's part of our family. He's alive." And I just thought, wow, this is, wow, this is not the way I thought about Anthony. I thought about Anthony as one of my, one of my failures. And
0: like you built it up into something in your, in your head.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I, I, I got in my car that night, they showered me with gifts and love. And they gave me a plant from their, um, their, their, the restaurant garden that had been there since they started their restaurant. And yeah. I. I got in the car and I was like, oh my God, I had this story all wrong. You know, I, I had it all wrong. I I did fulfill my purpose for Anthony and I did keep him here on earth. And yeah, he's not the same, but that's not because of me. That's because of the devastating disease that he had. And it was really, uh, it was an amazing feeling. And I called my co-writer, Sean, and I said, Sean, I got to tell you, I finally had the story of the end of Anthony and you're not going to believe it. And I told him the whole story. And he said, Mark, you're going to – he goes, we're going to put this right next to Jesus Rodriguez. We'll put it in the same chapter. And I said, Sean, that makes no sense. Why would we talk about Jesus Rodriguez who's this miraculous recovery and, and Anthony who's this – the sad story of a boy who's, who has, whose tumor altered his life trajectory. And he's like, Mark, you don't, you don't get it. I'm like, what do you mean I don't get it? He goes, you, you tell a story of Anthony – And you say, here's a man who's paralyzed and you make him walk again and you say, it's luck. And then you have a a boy who's got a terrible, devastating tumor and you save his life and he doesn't do well. And you say, it's your fault.
0: That is fascinating. Wow. It's so true. It's
1: an impossible standard to live up to, isn't it? It's impossible. So what I say when I When I tell the story of Anthony's, I went around from the flow zone to the calm before the storm to the all is lost to the birthing a new skill set, and I I I guess I'd want to put this question out to all of your listeners, and that is, who are your Anthony's? Who are what events have happened in your life that you're holding yourself to an impossible standard to? And when are you going to realize? that you don't have to hold yourself to that standard that that it's a story you've told yourself and other people may see it a totally different way that you that you might really gain an understanding of that helps you see the world in a in a different light
0: that is really 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 fascinating and honestly like i think it's a it's an it's a really interesting thought because it kind of helps you reframe the way you think of things
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um, I had a, a police officer came up to me after I told the story of Anton, and he said, you know, I I uh, got called to the scene of a fire one time and the fire department hadn't gotten there yet. And I got six people out of the house and they told me everybody was out. And I was sitting there high-fiving my friends. And then five minutes later, the fire department got there and they found out there was another person in the house who had burned to death and I've never, ever forgiven myself for mm-hmm. not getting that person out. And I said to this guy, I said, oh my gosh, like you saved six people and they told you everybody was out. It's so obvious yep. to the outsider, you know, it's so obvious yep. to somebody who's outside of that story to say, you're a hero, but we, we can hold ourselves to impossible standards. And we oftentimes are kinder to others than we are to ourselves.
0: I mean, it goes back to the, like your initial um, interest in this topic with Carl Jung. I mean, you hold yourself to such high standards. And if you don't, if you fall short of that automatically, it's that, that response, you know?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And uh, it's an important lesson to learn.
0: For sure. So my next question for you is then like, I know you've used this term cognitive dominance. What is that?
1: Cognitive dominance is a military term defined as enhanced situational awareness that facilitates rapid and accurate decision-making under stressful conditions with limited decision-making time. So really what it is, is it's functioning effectively in the face of fear in the face of Mm -hmm. fear and limiting factors. And um, I first heard it when I was up at West Point and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And how can I get more of that for myself, you know, because that's also Mm -hmm. neurosurgery, but it's also parenting. It's being a good business leader. It's, you know, giving a good podcast. It's being completely aware of what you have in front of you and how you can maximize your skills to make the right decisions and make the right moves.
0: Mm -hmm. So what are some actionable tips to sort of help someone achieve cognitive dominance? Like what do you do when you're going in for like a neurosurgery?
1: Right. So one is an awareness of those quadrants. That's important for me because that's, that will help guide me if an unexpected event comes I can unpack it as quickly as I can and understand where it sits on my map. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, you have to have some some uh, some some drilled in habits that will help you. For me, uh, in neurosurgery, it's rules, routines, and rituals. And um, so, and and again, this, this is transferable to any situation. So the rules of neurosurgery are very, very um, burned into your brain at a very early age. So one of them is, you know, never worry about a patient alone. Um, Always leave a drain, never cut what you can't see. Those are the kinds of things that guide a neurosurgery resident to stay out of trouble. So if you're thinking about something and you're worried about it, Why are you worried about that alone? But that's a transferable skill for life too. Like if you're worried about something and you feel alone about it, don't worry about it alone. Share it with somebody who might give you another perspective to solve it. Mm -hmm. So those are the rules. And then there are routines. And that is these are the things that I do every time in the same order before a surgery to get my body moving and, and to promote the environment of flow. You can't always live in flow. We talked about that. In fact, life would be pretty boring if you just lived in flow. But you mm-hmm. want to promote um, the opportunity to get into flow. And that is with your routines. So for me, that's uh, putting the MRI scans up of the patient before you know, I um, start the surgery and look at it and plan it. It's mm-hmm. but some, a routine I use called my five P's where I, before any surgery, I pause. I think about this patient, exactly who they are and what this disease has done to them. Um, and then I think of a plan. I put out a positive thought and then I say a prayer. So those are, that's my routine before every surgery. And that's, again, that's something that gets me in the mode of performing. And, um, and then there are rituals and rituals are, they're a little superstitious, you know, they're like wearing your lucky socks before a big event, you know, and they, again, those are little things that give you a little bit of an edge. And, and I think every high performer has those.
0: I love that. That's really, really interesting. Um, so I know that, like, I mean, we were talking about this a little before we started the interview, but I know that you are a proponent of things like meditation, right? So I'm wondering, like, what does meditation have to do with mental health and sort of making you show up as the best version of yourself?
1: Great question. When we experience fear, you know, our sympathetic nervous system starts to take over. And you know what? It's Mm -hmm. been very effective for thousands and thousands of years to help save our lives, But now when threats come at us, it's not the saber-toothed tiger. You know, it's not the lion in the camp. It's somebody criticizing us in a boardroom. So that Mm -hmm. sympathetic storm that you can get when something unexpected happens or when some threat comes to you, we need to figure out a way to suppress some of that surge And meditation is a great way to do that because meditation trains the parasympathetic and the autonomic nervous system that sort of the the counterbalance of the sympathetic nervous system. So when you are meditating, um, you are uh, focusing your mind to be um, as, as undistracted as possible on your breath typically is what we focus on. You can focus on your body sensations. You can focus on what you see visually, but it's a way of training your autonomic nervous system to kick in when there's something uh, that, that, that causes um, fear or causes some type of sympathetic storm. And there's a lot of great studies that show that you can actually train your autonomic nervous system, your parasympathetic system. There's a great book called What Doesn't Kill You by Wim Hof, who writes about how you can literally focus on slowing your heart rate down, on controlling your temperature, on controlling your breathing. And it's a a, a fascinating book um, of a man who goes to the extremes to do that. But you don't have to go to the extremes to do that. You can do that through meditation.
0: I love that. And you were saying that even just from uh, like a, like a scientific perspective in terms of like what meditation does to your brain as like, as someone who, I mean, works very closely with the brain. Do you, do you see that?
1: There's very good evidence, first of all, from a functional MRI uh, um, basis. So a functional MRI scan is a way of looking at your brain patterns by looking at how it metabolizes oxygen, at how neurotransmitters are moving through your brain, so we can literally follow the tracks in your brain uh, with these types of MRI scanners. And the functional MRI scanners um, scans of um, people who meditate on a regular basis clearly show strengthened pathways in um, in neural circuitry that is associated with Calm, cool, and collected thought. That's number one. Number two, there's actually anatomical studies that look at brains of meditators that show thickened cortical mantle, which is literally like some growth. Uh, It's very subtle, but it's real. There's growth of brain tissue in certain areas of your brain that allow you to control your emotional uh, your limbic system and you're seeing growth in that so that's a physical finding and and also a, um, a neurophysiological finding on the functional mri scan so there's two very good pieces of evidence that meditation can help you control uh, that fear freak out factor
0: that is fascinating Dr. Mark, this was an incredible interview. I learned so much, and I'm going to be um, working on perfecting the, the thinking through the gradient. <laughs>
1: good, good. The gradient of fear and the quadrants of uh, the heroic journey.
0: Amazing. And before we wrap, tell everyone where they can find you, like social media, website, if they want to get your book, where can they find you?
1: Sure. My website is markmclaughlinmd.com. And I have a blog that talks about a lot of these topics. I have a number of videos that will um, uh, uh, talk about the fear and um, a number of uh, motivational uh, talks about different areas of um of coaching and um, uh, neurosurgery. And the book is available on Amazon. It's called Cognitive Dominance, a Brain Surgeon's Quest to Outthink Fear. And it's essentially an adventure story about a big idea that I learned as I uh, went through my 20-year career as a neurosurgeon.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Mark.
1: My pleasure.